Welcome to Theology with Dr. A.M. Hackney. This podcast is focused on the vocational calling of Christians to be theologians. You'll find episodes on systematic theology, spiritual formation, scriptural interpretation, and ethics. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Hackney. In today's episode, I'm introducing the what and why of theology. Well, welcome listeners. I hope you are having an intrepid day today. Uh, Today's episode, I'm going to focus on two things. First, I want to introduce you to the exciting world of uh, theology and help you see why theology is vital to the day-to-day living out of our Christian faith. And second, I want us to practice the grammar of theology. What do we say? How do we say it? Why do we say it? In other words, what is the language of theology? So let's start with this question of why theology. And and it might seem strange to start with the why before the what, but I want to start here because oftentimes we have a wrong impression of the purpose and use of theology. And I've I've been a a college professor, I've taught freshman undergraduates, I've taught uh, seminary students, and from those years of experience, I've, I've compiled some of the most common objections to studying theology. So I want to do that, and then I want to define theology and why it is important, and then come back to these common objections to see if we can offer a response to them. So here are the common objections to studying theology, also known as, why do I need theology when? Why do I need theology when? My career is in business, trades, accounting, nursing, construction, teaching, anything but theology. Why do I need theology when I'm not planning on being a pastor? Why do I need theology when it's not relevant to my life? Why do I need theology when it's too hard and too complicated? Why do I need theology when it matters more that I do Christianity than get my theology right? In other words, love people and do good works and not have to explain it. Why do I need theology when I can just read my Bible and that's enough? Some of these might sound familiar to you. Some of them you may have even said yourself. I remember thinking a few of these back when I was a freshman undergraduate student. And and now I laugh at where my life has taken me. So holding those uh, those common objections, I want us to explore this question of what is theology? Now, of course, we can just break down theologies, right? The the word ology comes from the Greek word logos, and it literally means speech or word or reason. The Latin logia means to study. And so when we attach a prefix to ology, we get the study of whatever that prefix is. Theos is is the word for God. So theology is the study of God. Uh, you can do this with, with with many other terms that you might be familiar with. So biology, bios, is the study of life. Anthropology, with anthropos as its uh, prefix, is the study of humanity or of human nature. My husband is a psychologist, so I have to bring in psychology here. Uh, psychology is the soul. And so it's uh, the field of psychology is the study of mind and behavior, of the, of the inward person, right? So on on the one hand, we have this definition of what the word is, but that doesn't necessarily tell us what theology is. And so I want us to to look at a few of my favorite definitions of theology. First is the classic uh, definition set forth by Anselm. So Anselm is uh, 11th century. He says, theology is faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. Three words, simple, 
to the point, but there's so much to unpack there. What is faith? What does seeking look like? And what is understanding? Stanley Grenz, a Canadian uh, Baptist theologian, said theology is the reflection on and the articulation of the belief structure that gives identity to the Christian, pe- to the Christian people. Uh, he goes on to say it is the discipline of articulating our beliefs in, a some, in some sort of systematic or thematic way. It is what happens when we move beyond mere haphazard reflection on faith and consciously seek to articulate our beliefs systematically. I like what Grenz is doing here because it pairs well with Anselm, this idea of consciously seeking to articulate our beliefs. One of my mentors, Ephraim Radner, says this. He says, theology is that whole realm of discussion in which we seek to speak truly about God and God's work in the created world. And so we see this language of speaking, right, that, that comes from this logos and this logia. When we are doing theology, we are discussing, we are speaking, and we're speaking not in the abstract, but we're speaking about God and God's work. Beth Felker Jones, uh, in her book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, says this, she says, Christian theology is a conversation about scripture about how to read and interpret it better and how to understand the Bible as a whole, to imagine a way of life that is faithful to the God whose word this is. Theology is a conversation about scripture and it produces distinct Christian teachings called doctrine. Later on, she says, theology is the discipline of learning from the word of God and learning to use words faithfully when we speak about God. So just like Radner, we have this language of speaking. And what I like is she picks up this uh, repetition of the word faithful. She says it's about imagining a way of life that is faithful to God. And it's about learning to use words faithfully when we speak about God. And I think that also echoes Anselm's definition of faith-seeking understanding. But even these preliminary definitions of theology may, may still feel a little bit abstract. And so there's different fields of theology or different ways of organizing and articulating theological ideas. And I'm going to offer four. Depending on who you talk to, these, these will be divided a little bit differently. But, but in general, as we're talking about theology, there's basically four tracks. First, there's biblical theology. Now, this one, uh, I might get some people angry at me for how I define it. But remember, this is Um, a a generic entry point into the topic of theology. I don't want to get into arguments about Brevard Childs and early 20th century discussions of the field of biblical theology. But basically, biblical theology uh, looks at theology presented in specific books or sections of the Bible. So someone might study the theology of judgment in the Old Testament prophetic writings or the theology of the Holy Spirit in the letters of Paul or the theology of kingdom in the gospel of Matthew. So in the way I'm using biblical theology, this is uh, an exploration of theological themes in specific sections of the biblical text. And you can even expand it out and do 
some cross-examination. You could compare the theology of kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew with the theology of kingdom in the book of Isaiah or something like that. So there can be, it's not limited to a specific book. It's not limited to one or other of the Testaments, but it's this idea of what is being said theologically in the biblical text. And so that's how I define biblical theology uh, for an intro uh, class on theology. And of course, as my students go out, they can learn more of the nuances about the history of the field of biblical theology. The second major field is what we call historical theology. Historical theology looks at how theology has been worked out in a specific historical context. So someone might study the doctrine of justification in the patristic era, which is the early church, about the first 500 years of the church. Or someone might study the doctrine of the church in the Reformation era. Or it could even be more specific, the doctrine of justification in the work of John Calvin versus the doctrine of justification in the work of Martin Luther. In both cases, special attention is paid to the historical circumstances in which the doctrine was being studied, which previous sources and documents the authors were drawing from and interacting with, and the importance of that doctrine in that time. What was taking place that special attention was paid to this or that doctrine? So, for example, with the church, why were the reformers so focused on trying to articulate what the church was? Well, it has to do with um, the, the cultural and theological situation of the day as they were trying to articulate what the church should look like in contrast to what they were seeing in the Roman Catholic Church. And so even theology done today, modern or contemporary theology, is a form of historical theology. Theology within the context of our North American Western 21st century um, world. A third area is pastoral theology, and pastoral theology looks at how theology works on the ground or in ministry. Examples of this might be developing a theology of disability and ministry, a theology of salvation in children's ministry, um, anything related to theology of funerals and weddings, a theology of hospital visitations and shut-ins, all of that is pastoral theology. Now, you may also hear the term practical theology here, and some people use these terms interchangeably, and others do not. Pastoral theology is specifically the realm of training people for ministry, particularly in a seminary or a Bible college. Practical theology tends to attempt to examine these ministry issues from a neutral or scientific posture. One way to think of it is this. Pastoral theology is to theological studies as practical theology is to religious studies. In both practical theology and religious studies, the academic should be as removed from the situation as possible, functioning as an impartial observer and using some sort of scientific methodology. Now, there's going to be debate and argument about that as well and and where the line is between practical and pastoral theology. And then finally, we have my favorite field, and that's the field of systematic theology. This is the field that looks at what the Bible says as a whole about different doctrines and tries to find ways to summarize them in a way that recognizes that each doctrine is connected to the others. And if they're not connected, explain why and how they're not. 
So what we say or summarize about the Trinity will impact what we say or summarize about Jesus. And what we say or summarize about Jesus will impact what we say, summarize about the Trinity and about the church and about salvation. So systematic theology is very much a spider's web. It's interconnected and it's multi-layered. Part of what we also have to do is just define some general terms. You're going to hear these terms thrown out both in this podcast and maybe in uh, sermons that your preachers are, are, are preaching or maybe in the books that you're reading. But there are several terms that, that are used and that's doctrine, theology, and dogma. Doctrine, theology, and dogma. Now, uh, I should be noted that evangelicals and Protestants tend to use doctrine and theology interchangeably as synonyms. Theology, doctrine, doesn't matter. They're both the same. But you'll also see them used with separate meanings. Um, one way of, of, to think about it is this. Theology is the action or journey of faith-seeking understanding, of speaking about God and his creation, Doctrine, on the other hand, is, according to Kevin Van Hooser, what faith-seeking understanding gets when its search is successful. Christian doctrine is the reward that faith finds at the end of its search for meaning of the apostolic testimony to what God was doing in the event of Jesus Christ. So theology is the action or the journey and doctrine is the reward. That's one way to think about it. Paul Allen, in his book on theological method, describes the relationship between theology and doctrine this way. He says, theology is a reflection on sacred doctrine. So they're still very much connected to each other. We also have this term dogma. And dogma refers to those doctrines which are absolute and unchangeable and non-negotiable. Dogmas are those doctrines that cannot change in the task of theological reflection and must be affirmed to be part of the faith. Now, evangelicals don't tend to use the term dogma, but we do tend to use the term dogmatics, especially in relation to reformed systematic theology. Thus, uh, Karl Barth's magnum opus is called the church dogmatics. Herman Bovink's multi-volume work is called reformed dogmatics. Donald Blesch defines dogmatics this way. He says it's the articulation of the dogma of revelation in the light of the biblical and apostolic witness and in light of the interpretation of this revelation by the fathers and doctors of the church through the ages. Consequently, dogmatics is always provisional, whereas dogma is abiding. And I think that's an important distinction that Blush makes. Dogmatics are provisional, dogma is abiding. So now that we've laid out um, a definition of what theology is, both the word itself and then, and then how we use it, I want to explore this question of why theology? And, and before we get back to the common objections that we offered at the beginning of the podcast, I want us to look at historically how the church has seen theology and its place in the life of faith. And, and here I'm following the work of Stanley Grenz. His book is Theology for the Community of God, because he lays it out quite succinctly. So historically, the recognition for the need of theology can be categorized into three groups. Gren says polemics, catechetics, and biblical summarization. So let's start with polemics. Polemics comes from our word for apologia, which you might hear there the word apology and think that it's a very Canadian way of doing theology by saying sorry all the time. Apologia or apology in this context means a defense of the faith. So to do polemics is to defend the faith. 
And so Stanley Grenz puts it this way, theologians carry out their work because of the need to define the Christian belief system in the context of alternatives. So that's that's Grenz's explanation of polemics. And, and, and we see this particularly in the early church uh, with the doctrinal controversies that the church was working out as they were trying to figure out which is orthodox belief and which are heretical beliefs and, and which are orthodox practices and which are heretical practices. We see this in the Reformation as both the reformers and the Catholics attempted to work out and defend what they believed in light of Martin Luther's seminal work. Today is no different. We continue to ask, what does it mean to be a Christian in light of postmodernity? And how is that different from Christianity under modernity that was ushered in by the Enlightenment? What does it mean to be a Christian in light of living in a diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multi-religious community? What does it mean to be a Christian living in light of what has been dubbed a post-Christian nation? And this is a, a very live question right now for the church. What does Christianity mean as the society is moving further and further away from its Judeo-Christian roots? So polemics, a defense of the faith. And, and there are, are uh, entire fields of apologetic ministries, and there, there are different organizations that offer training in how to give a defense of Christianity and to ask and answer questions when people from outside the faith are both seeking and accusing the church of, uh, for its beliefs. So polemics. We also have catechetics. I love this word, catechetics. Doesn't it just sound so great, catechetics? Catechetics, according to Grenz, is the theological enterprise that is an outworking of the need to offer instruction to the people. So catechetics comes from and is built off of a word for teaching. So uh, to be a catechist is to be a teacher of the faith. To be a catechumen is to be a student or a learner of the faith catechetics is the act of teaching or the field of teaching and then the catechism is the content or how we're teaching the faith so i am a catechist you may as my listeners be catechumens my college students are catechumens the 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 endeavor that we uh, journey towards as we uh, do classes is uh, catechetics and the content of that is the catechism. And some traditions have formal catechisms, formal documents that they use to pass on the faith to each generation. So you might have heard of the Westminster Catechism. The Anglicans have to be an Anglican, which is their catechism. But even just the the task of uh, reading a systematic theology or a theological book is part of this catechism, the, the, the teaching and the transmission of the faith. The task and teaching of faith and helping believers grow in their knowledge of God is part of the pedagogical mandate that we see in Matthew 28, 19, the, the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. We do that by teaching the faith. So we have polemics, we have catechetics, but we also have biblical summarization. Grenz uh, defines it this way. He says, Christians have always sensed the need to bring the basic themes taught in the Bible into summary form. 
I, I use this example with my students. Imagine that somebody has asked you, what is Christianity? And you start at Genesis 1 and you just start reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that may not actually answer the question. And about 30 seconds into your reading of Genesis, the person has probably tuned you out. And probably by the time you get to Exodus and most definitely by the time you get to Leviticus, you haven't answered their question. And so there's always been this sense of summarizing the Christian faith, summarizing the story of God and his people. And we don't, and this isn't new. We see this uh, action and this task of summarization within the pages of scripture itself. We see specific summary statements. For example, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of the law. It's not the whole law, but it's a summary of the law that God gave the Israelites, right? We see uh, summaries of Christ's work in 1 Corinthians. My favorite, though, is the summary in Philippians 2. This is a summary of who Jesus is and what he has done. And what I like about this is it's also a hymn, right? This is the Christ hymn. And, and so let's go there. Let's turn to Philippians and just take a look at this. So Philippians chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, if you read uh, biblical scholars who have studied this, they say that Paul is actually quoting an early Christian hymn that the Philippians would have been familiar with. So here we have biblical summarization that's not just a list, but it also shapes our worship, right? And so in uh, seven, six, seven short verses, we have a summary of what we see in the many chapters and pages of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So biblical summarization. We also see that this, this idea of summarization continues outside of the pages of scripture and outside of those early apostles. We see it in the creation of the creeds. And creeds may be new to you, but, but creeds have, have formed the, the foundation of the theological proclamation of the church. And so you have several. You have the Apostles' Creed, which would have been said at a person's baptism and still is today, particularly in the Anglican tradition. You have the Nicene Creed, which was a response and a solidification of key teachings in light of false teaching or incorrect teaching. And so here in the Nicene Creed, we see both the task of biblical summarization. It is summarizing the story of scripture 
And it's polemical in that it's responding to the Arian controversy. Those who thought that Jesus was not God himself, but was instead the first thing that God created. And then with the creeds, they are then used as catechetical devices. We teach the faith by teaching our children and new believers the creeds. And so all of these are connected. And what we see is that the work of theology is ongoing. It is not static. Scripture is infallible. Scripture, we don't add anything to scripture now, but theology is a bit different. It's an ongoing work because it's the words of humans. And, and, and so, so there's, there's this distinction. Jesus is unchanging. <laughs> we, because we are finite, are finding ourselves in different situations, in different cultures, in different eras, asking different questions. And so the task of theology is going to always be in flux. It's a continuing conversation. It is not the final word. The final word is Jesus himself. And so theologians, we seek to assist the church in bringing the confession of faith uh, that Jesus is Lord into the contemporary context. Calvin did it in the Reformation. Athanasius did it in the early church period. People like Beth Felker Jones and Ephraim Radner have, are doing it in the modern context. Our job is to bring this Jesus is Lord statement into a contemporary context, which means that the task of the theologian and the task of theology never ends. And so I like Stanley Grenz, uh, his reflection here, he says, the theologian is a pilgrim thinker ministering on behalf of a pilgrim people. We are a people who are on a journey. We haven't arrived. We are far from home. We are wanting and longing to be home. And theology is a task of this life of pilgrimage. So in light of this conversation of the what and the why, let's go back to those common objections that I offered in, in the introduction to this episode. Common objections to studying theology. Why do I need theology when? And, and, and let's, let, I'm going to take them one at a time and, and offer a brief reflection on each of them. So the first one was my, my career is in business, trades, accounting, nursing, construction, teaching, insert any field here, and not theology. It's amazing how particularly um, undergraduates have this sense of theology is for theologians. It's not for everybody else. And what I try to do is, is point out all the ways that theology actually not only impacts, but undergirds their profession. The whole question of business ethics is fundamentally a theological question. How do we steward God's creation and the resources that he has both given us and that he's equipped us to create because he's made us a creative people? Teaching, construction, nursing, all have deep theological questions that that undergird the entire profession. We just may not always pay attention to them. I also get the, why do I need theology when I'm not planning on being a pastor or in ministry? Again, it's this ivory tower understanding of theology is only for the academics or theology is only for the pastor. And, and, and what we actually see is that by very, the very nature of being a Christian, we are theologians. 
by speaking about God, we are theologians. And we can either be good theologians or bad theologians. We can either speak well about God or we can speak badly about God. I'm never quite sure where this one comes from. Why do I need theology when it's not relevant to my life? Usually by the end of the first uh, lecture, students are going, oh, I have so many questions that maybe you can finally answer that I haven't been able to find answers for. And so this question of relevance is always such a slippery thing. But I want to say that theology is relevant But relevance shouldn't be what drives our theological task, because then we end up in all kinds of of issues of trying to accommodate theology to our culture. And we can talk about that on another podcast episode. Now, this one, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do with. Why do I need theology when it's too hard and complicated? Well, things in life are hard and complicated, and that doesn't mean they're not worth doing. And 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 there's something formative about wrestling with the hardness and the the complicated nature of theology, it's still forming us, even if we wrestle with it, even if we don't get it. I tell students that I actually really struggled in my undergraduate uh, program when theology veered too far into the philosophical field. I found the more philosophical theology just something I couldn't grasp. But it still shaped me and it was still worth doing and I still have to come back to it and wrestle with it. I'm grateful for my friends who are doing analytic theology. I don't understand half the things that they're saying, but that doesn't mean that it's not actually important um, to this task of doing theology. The, the, the big one that I get is it matters more that I do theology, that I do Christianity uh, than get my theology right. And there's, there seems to be this divide between doctrine and practice that, that's quite cemented in our culture, both in the church and outside the church. Do not think. Thinking is for people who have time on their hands, but, it's, but that, that means that they're uh, not in the world, right? It's this idea of being in a bubble and not actually understanding how the world works. And and I, and I hope that um, through this podcast episode and through the future episodes, you'll see that we shouldn't be picking either good works or theology, ref- theological reflection. Instead, they go hand in hand. What we do impacts our theological reflection, what we think about Jesus, what we say about Jesus, and what we say about Jesus impacts what we do. And you can't have one without the other. They go together. They're inseparable. And then the last one is, why do I need theology when I can just read my Bible and that's enough? And and that one's always a laugh because scripture is both plain and simple to understand and deep and mysterious. And we also have the fact that there are thousands of years of language and culture and time and worldview uh, separating us from Uh, those original authors who were inspired by God um, to write the pages of scripture. And so that question of why I can just read my Bible and that's enough, uh, I say, and that's why you need to take an intro to New Testament and an intro to Old Testament class, because you'll see that we need to speak about what we're reading. We need to think about what we're reading. We need to question and wrestle with, with what scripture says. And more importantly, we need to do that in community and not on our own. 
So I hope you're you're catching a vision for theology, its its use, its purpose, its its necessity in our world. But I want to just switch and talk about something that's closely related to this question of theology. And that is the question of what is heresy? Heresy is a teaching that fundamentally changes the belief system into a different belief system. A heresy is a teaching that is so wrong that it means that you are no longer teaching that belief, but a different belief altogether. And so we have some, some words here that, go relate, that, that are related to this. Heresy is a teaching. A heretic is a person who teaches a heresy. And then we also have an adjective form. We have heretical. So it's used to describe an incorrect teaching. So we would say that teaching is heretical. Now, heresies are very serious, and to call someone a heretic is a very serious charge. When I talk about theology and when I'm teaching an intro to systematic theology class, I say there's basically two heresies that we will cover. The, the first one is saying that God is not one in three. This is what we call a Trinitarian heresy, a heresy related to the doctrine of the Trinity, if we deny that God is one or if we deny that God is three. Or if we deny the and, that God is one and three. And the second is the, the heresy that when we say that Jesus is not fully God and fully human. And we call this a Christological heresy. So those are the two main heresies in the history of the church. This is why we have this polemical and catechetical and biblical summarization task to theology in the first 500 years of the church as they're trying to wrestle through what is it that we believe, what is it that we teach. The key questions in those first 500 years are who and what is the Trinity and who is Jesus? And to get those questions wrong mean you end up with something that is not Christianity. That being said, and this needs to be stated very clearly, heresy is not the same thing as disagreement. Let me say that one again. Heresy is not the same as disagreement. And too often, particularly if you're on social media, you'll see people throwing around this label heretic simply because there's disagreement between them. There are many doctrines and practices over which Christians disagree, but these are not necessarily heresies. But there are some doctrines that are so fundamental that if a person says, I don't believe that, then the person is outside of the Christian faith. And I think the best way to think about this question of heresy and heretics and whether or not something is heretical is to picture a sandbox. So picture a sandbox and picture some preschoolers playing in the sandbox. In one corner of the sandbox, Jimmy is making a sandcastle. Uh, in another corner, Sa Sally is trying to dig a hole all the way through the bottom of the sandbox. Chris is in the middle making mud pies. Jimmy, Sally, and Chris, they're all doing something different, but they are within the wooden frames of the sandbox. The sandbox is large enough to hold all three of them and allow them to play with the sand in different ways. Julie, on the other hand, is not in the sandbox. She's swinging on the swing set. We cannot say that Julie is playing in the sandbox. She is doing a completely different activity. We know this because she is not in the sandbox and because she's not playing with sand. 
This is what heresy is. It makes the activity something different than playing in the sandbox. But what happens in the sandbox is not all the same. Each of the kids is doing something different. The frame of the sandbox keeps the kids and the sand in the sandbox. Now, what do we do with a uh, little Bobby who is standing outside the sandbox but leaning over the wooden frame and playing with the sand? And that's where things get messy. Is he within the wooden frames of the sandbox? Is he outside or is he inside? And then how do we figure out what we do with what Bobby is doing related to the sandbox? And so if we use this image of sandbox, what am I referring to? Well, the frame of the sandbox is very much the creeds that we have. Uh, for 2,000 years, the frame of Christianity, the frame around the sand that is Christianity, has been the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition. Church councils met to wrestle over what Christianity was and was not, and as they articulated the basic beliefs of Christianity, they crafted creeds that lay out what Christians believe. These creeds give the frame for the Christian sandbox. And you will see there is much diversity within Christianity. In other words, the sandbox is actually quite large. Just as there are many ways to play in the sandbox, there are many denominations and traditions in Christianity. Scripture itself points to the beauty and the necessity of diversity in the church. And we'll explore that in a future episode where we talk about this question of what is the church and what does she do? Most of the time, we end up being heretics accidentally because we haven't learned theology. Most of us would not be heretics on purpose. We don't mean to say that God is not three in one or that Jesus is not fully God and fully human. Instead, we are accidental heretics because we don't have the right words to describe who God is. Accidental heresy happens most often with the doctrine of the Trinity because it's so difficult to explain. And so this becomes this question of the what and why of theology. To do theology is to learn the grammar of faith, to learn how to speak rightly about God. And so there are times when we're learning theology and we're just learning the words and we're learning the rules of grammar so that we can have the conversation. And one of the ways that we learn to speak is to mimic or copy those who are speaking. So think about a child. A child, we don't teach a two-year-old grammar rules. Instead, a two-year-old learns because he's hearing his parents and his siblings speak around him, and he seeks to imitate those sounds. And slowly, the babble cooing becomes a ba, and then a da, and then a da-da, and a word is spoken right? And they're going to get the grammar wrong, but they're learning to communicate. And we don't necessarily correct a child's grammar right off as they're trying to communicate because they won't understand the rules. But we do model good speaking to our children. Perhaps a good example of this is my son. My son, when he was little, had a problem with the word I, and he would do everything with my instead, my hungry instead of I'm hungry, my sleepy, 
right? My whatever, right? And it was cute. And because he was our third, we didn't want to correct him. But we did try to say, oh, so we say, I'm hungry, right? And and so it becomes this journey. Now, he outgrew that phase. He's, he's now much older and he does not walk around saying, my hungry, unless we're reminding him of how he spoke when he was a child. But he has since learned to go from dada and my hungry to full sentences to the point that we can't get him to stop talking. And so that's what I hope theology will be for us. We might just be echoing sounds and consonants and then speaking in a way that we're getting our message across, but we're not using the right words to actually being able to articulate and put words together to make beautiful sentences and poetry and music. That is the task of theology. And that's why theology matters. Theology helps us do three things. It helps us to speak and teach about God rightly. The term for this is orthodoxy. Ortho means right. Doxa means teaching. Orthodoxy is the opposite of heresy. Theology helps us to speak rightly, to speak in a way that is orthodox. Theology also helps us to love and worship God rightly. And the term for this is orthopathy. Ortho meaning right and pathos meaning love. Theology doesn't just help us speak, but it also shapes our heart so that we love rightly, both God and neighbor. And theology helps us to serve and pattern our lives after God rightly. And the term for this is orthopraxy, right practice. Theology helps us to live rightly, to practice rightly. I want to end with a quote from Stanley Grenz. Uh, He was a Canadian Baptist theologian. Um, This is from his book, Theology for the Community of God. He says, Every Christian is a theologian, whether consciously or unconsciously. Each person of faith embraces a belief system. And each believer, whether in a deliberate manner or merely implicitly, reflects on the content of these beliefs and their significance for the Christian life. And so, listeners, I thank you for joining me today. I hope that you will continue the conversation, that you will continue to want to explore theology, and that you will speak and dialogue with me about what's happening theologically in your life. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast. to to follow me on Twitter, and I hope that you have a blessed day.